When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're back with another special episode of the Book Riot Podcast. This one we're calling Book Club Club, wherein we look at books that have been popular book club books, um, either just organically in the world that get picked up or maybe in the future that get named by certain multimedia conglomerate dominating celebrity book club figures i don't know who i'm talking about right now i'm just putting whoever it do you mean um we'll talk about that on the regular show we're taping tomorrow that will he- appear before you hear this one so i guess you'll know the thing i'm thinly <laughs> referring to i'm still getting used to this cadence where yeah, we're, we're we sort exist of like, outside of time and space yeah. here on the bonus episodes um so and clearly the book club book of the year maybe of the decade to this point um is where the crawdad sing by delia owens which has sold multiple million copies in print who knows how many in ebooks because we don't get any data and who knows how many in audiobook <laughs> because we don't get any data either it just passed 52 weeks um it just passes one year anniversary and it's been on the new york times bestseller list i'm not sure did you see if it debuted on the new york times bestseller list or book scan in the top 20 oh i didn't i, didn't, I did I didn't not go, go that far either but over the last really six months it's been the number one best-selling hard picture title on BookScan virtually every week, selling pretty consistently 40,000 copies or so a week. And for context, with all the hubbaloo about the Testaments and the launch and everything, in the Testaments first week, it sold 111,000 copies in hardcover in its release week, which is mm-hmm. good. I mean, it's clearly more than 44,000, but that's that book, that much hype, that many print copies, and that's one week. And who knows what it's going to sell next week? I, I guess it'd be way down. So the consistent burn of where the crawdads sing, we haven't seen something like this since the days of Girl on the Train, Gone Girl. And yeah. even then, I can't do the comms for sales one-on-one in my head. I feel like I haven't seen a book out in the world so much since like Fifty Shades of Grey. Like at this, at, at, on this day, I have texted you from three different <laughs> hair appointments that are all six weeks apart being like, I'm sitting here getting my hair done and multiple people are reading Where the Crawdads Sing. Um, it's just everywhere. And you are in the Mid-Atlantic where this is set. It's a Southern-ish book. We'll talk about that as we get into it. So I'm not surprised that out in the wild, so to speak. I mean, you're not in a marsh, but um, you're seeing it out there more often. But I'm seeing people I know on Facebook are saying they're reading it. I see it. It's the mm-hmm. best-selling book all the way around. Um, came out from Putnam is making it rain with uh, Where the Crowd Dead Sing. So I guess the first thing, we're going to get into spoilers here in a little bit. We're going to do some context and background too here. There's been a lot of discussion of how this book happened. Why is it? Was there a catalyst that launched the thing it was named by reese's book club you and i are both very skeptical that that actually matters for the story here because there have been other Mm -hmm. books named in reese's book club and they haven't gone on to sell meaningfully we don't even know at this point we've talked about it before 
The timing just doesn't quite make sense. The book came out last fall. Reese named it, Reese Witherspoon named it to her book club selection in September. Um, And from what I can piece together of the math, it sold about 300,000 copies somewhere in that neighborhood between September and the end of 2018. And then by like July of this year, it had sold like 1.4 million copies total. So it did not pick like 300,000 in a couple of months is still a really Mm -hmm. good way to come out of the gate for any novel. But the big surge in sales didn't happen until like sometime in the first or second quarter of this year when the when the momentum really picked up. So it could be people kind of just word of mouthing it from Reese's book club, but it wasn't an overnight sensation because of being selected to Reese's book club. And my best guess is that it's a bunch of things that this is just like the book that happened to end up in the water this year of people did read it for Reese's book club. But then it's just sort of out there as the book that book clubs are reading, people are recommending it to other people. I mentioned to a friend who's like not in the book world at all, that I was reading it for this show. And she was like, Oh, yeah, like five of the people in my office are reading that. Um, It's just it's just like the book that everybody wants to read and be able to say that they've read this year. Yeah. I th- again one one day knock I'm why well, I'm not knocking on wood that's not if I had the magic genie of work a work magic genie um <laughs> and my books I had a book scan account and someone to do the research I would really like to know what its sales shape looked like compared to Gone Girl Girl on the Train The Help Lovely Bones uh we're going to talk you know at some other point mm-hmm. about um some of the the better book, historical book club picks but is it look any different? People want to ascribe it to something. Here's the truth, I think we know. It's like what William Goldman said about Hollywood. No one knows anything. The truth of the matter is it's we want to make a story out of data. And the story, yeah. the only available story to us is that Reese Witherspoon's book club picked it and that made it a hit. The counter to that is she picks a lot of books and they don't sell anywhere like this. Maybe it was an accelerant. Like maybe it was not going to be a thing and because she picked it and Reese Witherspoon is a southerner and maybe people who read with Reese Witherspoon books are especially attracted to this and word of mouth but I think it, at this point it exceeds I think that so particular storyline so which leaves us some other questions um, <laughs> and I think maybe the desire to, to ascribe it to Reese Witherspoon is borne out people reading the book and trying to figure it out because it's a strange one it's not one that I would have picked Reading blind, if you would give me 20 books, if you would have given me in 2018, here are 20 books, pick the one that's going to sell 2 million copies in the next 18 months, I can virtually guarantee you I wouldn't have picked uh, this particular book. What else about the background, Rebecca? There's some weird Delia Owens backstory stuff. I don't even know what to do with this at this point, except notice (laughs) it. Yeah, I don't, it's same, because it's not really related to the book at all in terms of the content of the book, but like for a while, a few decades ago, um, well, for Delia Owens spent 22 years in Africa with her husband, um, like working on wildlife conservation, living close to the land. And there were some controversial things that occurred um, in her, let's call it like wider social and professional circle while she was there. And somebody ended up dead. She was not suspected of the murder, but like seems to have fled the country and um, has been wanted for questioning related to a a murder there. The real, like really the most 
relevant to the book part of this is the reminder that she lived in Africa for a couple of decades and um, cares about nature and conservation and sort of like the natural biological approach to things because as we'll get into as we talk more about the story um, one of the characters in the book primarily understands human relationships through her reading about like animal relationships in the natural world and it seems like Delia Owens must have ported um, actually she says in an interview um, on Hello Sunshine on the Reese Witherspoon website that she ported uh, like some of her understanding of like how lions behave in prides to the kind of story that she was trying to tell mm-hmm. about human people let's do a quick synopsis and then we can end the spoiler free part of the show <laughs> the book is about starts off um with Kyra Clark, who is the youngest daughter of the Clark family who lives in the marshes off the coast, on the coast of North Carolina, um, in a interesting setting. And one, you know, I think one of the strongest parts of the book is this liminal space of the marsh. And it's kind of both outside the law and within the law at the same time as it comes up in very sort of mm-hmm. hit you over the head kind of ways later. Um, through a variety of terrible things happening, Kyra basically ends up living by herself with her alcoholic, abusive um, war vet father, starting at the age of six, just her and him. And she has to sort of fend for herself. A few years later, her dad, I can't remember now, actually, Rebecca, disappears, dies. He just disappears. He disappears. Eventually, we assume he's dead. And how old was she at that point? Do you remember? I think she's like... 10? 7 to 10. Yeah, 7 to 10. Somewhere in there. She's young. And, you know, the the macro is Kyra's life on the marsh um, is what's coming in there. But there we get a love triangle. I don't want to spoil too much about it. And then there's also a frame story. Yeah. So the book opens in 1952. That's when Kyra is six. And then we ping pong back and forth between um, a murder that happens in 1969 where a young, a man, he's a man, I get this point. He's a married man with kids, Mm -hmm. is found dead, um, appears to have fallen off a fire tower where you look for fires, which I don't know why I have to do this in a marsh. This is what anyway. That's another question I have. Um, (laughs) He's found dead and... There's there's some suspicious things around it. There's no footprints. There's no fingerprints. There's no, you know, so the, a murder investigation opens. And so the narratives start to collide. They start to move towards each other in time mm-hmm. and in theme and in plot. And I guess that's, that's I think that's all we can really say without spoiling yeah. it. Is that right? Did I get that basically right? Yeah, I think so. The, the frame of the murder mystery sort of guides the pace and the, content of the story as it moves forward and what we learn about Kaya, what we learn about the dead guy whose name is Chase, um, and what we learn about uh, her other social relationships to the extent that she has them. All right, let's do a sponsor and then we'll get into the meat of our discussion. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. 
these, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so look, we don't want to sugarcoat it, nor do we want this to be a screed, but we didn't care for this book. We did not. Okay. So let's um, well let's yep. come back to that. Let's let's just get that out of the way <laughs> because I think what would be maybe most interest more interesting than our own opinions about it is why if if we have any sense at all of why this book became the phenomenon it is, what is it about this book that we think we don't know. I'm gonna put it out there, we don't know what it is about this book. That makes it this word of mouth sensation. I mean, there's no word other way of putting it. We don't like the book. The book is a sensation. How do we square those two things? Because clearly our opinion in this one doesn't matter. But putting our opinion aside, it doesn't matter. Like to, right now, they're like, you know what? We're going to give these million copies back because Jeff and Rebecca don't like it. What is it about this book do we think that has you know, t- gotten people to talk about it and read it and recommend it together? Yeah, I'm... Of course, I was hoping that I would enjoy the I book. Was I, really enjoy. Was I, was, I really was hoping. I really was hoping. Yeah, I was hoping I would enjoy it. You want to enjoy a reading experience. I knew that we were going to be doing this show and I had been saving it to take on vacation. And pretty early on, I was like, Ugh, I'm, I'm not going to like this. Um, but it moves pretty quickly. Like it didn't feel like a lot of work to finish the book. And once I had identified that I wasn't personally going to love the story, <laughs> I got to put on the lens of like book scientist. Of, like, okay, so <laughs> like, put on the overcoat, so what, you know, put on the white jacket yeah, and get out the steps. Right. So, I, yeah. I put on my, you know, explosive protection goggles and was like, all right, what, so what is it that makes people love this book? Why is it such a big deal? Um, I think that, I think that there's a lot of good book club fodder 
in the story. Um, Stories about abusive families and like patterns of victimization um, often do well in book clubs. And like Oprah also has a history of recommending novels that deal with those issues. And Kaya is certainly uh, victimized in multiple ways and by multiple people. Um, She's sexually assaulted at one point and um, a character attempts to rape her. So like also trigger warnings for this book. There's a lot of child abuse um, of multiple kinds on the page, um, neglect and also um, sexual assault and just some very troubling um, social dynamics and and gender dynamics. So there's a lot to talk about, I think. Um, It's a survival story. Like a lot of this is completely unbelievable. I think that a six-year-old with you know the strength or lack thereof of a six-year-old's body would be able to do the kinds of things that Kaya does like uh, one of the Goodreads reviews that I read pointed out like there's no way that a six-year-old would be able to get into like a very crappy old boat and successfully pull the um like the starter I have a six-year-old in my house right yeah my daughter is Mm -hmm. six and I was just looking at her yesterday I'm like there's no way And, and she is a capable you know smart she can figure things out I'm like there's, there's no way. There, there's no yeah. way. I just don't see it. Like, it's just, it's unbelievable, but I guess inspiring the ways that Kaya, like, manages to survive yeah. on her own. Um, there are also, as I said, like, complex gender dynamics here. Kaya has basically no interactions with humans or very few interactions with other humans. She's out there in the swamp by herself. She gets taken to school for exactly one day mm-hmm. by the truant officer, and the other kids make fun of her, and it's awful, so she never goes back. Um, but she has this relationship with a boy named Tate, who is uh, had been a friend of her brother's, the brother who was the last one to leave home. Uh, it's like her mother leaves on the opening page, and then two of her older siblings are already gone, and the other siblings leave her after that, like because they just can't deal with the alcoholic abusive father, so they leave, but they don't take her with them. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's, yeah, there's a lot of like, what is going on here. So she's out in the swamp. She eventually, I think when she's like 14, re-encounters her brother's friend Tate, who is later in his teenage years. He's attracted to her, um, but decides not to do anything about it because she's so young. Like four years and older or something? Like 15 and yeah, 19, he, I, I remember think, at one point. Yeah, it's it's like 14 and 18 yeah. or 15 and 19, something like that. Um, he's old enough to know better and she's young and also very like naive in the ways of human interaction. Um, But he's kind to her and teaches her how to read and has like nice, they have a nice relationship and become very close. Uh, If you can get over the fact that he's an 18 year old who wants to be having sex with her and just isn't because it's not legal. Um, And then later on, she has a relationship with Chase who had been like the star of the football team and is Mr. Like big man on campus kind of, caricature almost um who has like they have a secret relationship that he ends up hurting her and so results in her being a suspect in Mm -hmm. his death um so i think there's a lot there like it's a the notion of like that a woman that a girl could grow into a woman who does these things i guess might be inspiring like I couldn't get over like, so we're taking child neglect and poverty and turning it into entertainment? Like, Well, yeah, I mean, that's tough. I, I, I guess my read of it is connected to a lot of what you just said is that Kyra is very easy to root for, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's by herself. She 
has been abandoned, abused, neglected. She's resourceful. Like when she's watching her mom walk away in her fake crocodile shoes and she's trying to buy the grits at the store and she can't count the money. Like my, I felt my sympathy for her be like a real thing. Like, and in Mm -hmm. a way, I don't remember what book came out a while ago where there was a big discussion about books being manipulative. Like what would it mean to call a book manipulative? And I found myself wondering about that here. Like, Kyra's our sympathy for Kyra is so overdetermined. Like her mom leaves, her dad's abusive, her brother leaves, she lives in the marsh, she's hungry all the time. Um, it's just she she's like a sympathy sink. She's like a black hole of pathos. And mm. that wanting her to succeed and make it is real and a human thing to do. I don't know if that's manipulative or making a character people care about. I, I don't know, but I found myself like if you can call something manipulative, I think this might be on the borderline of it. Yeah, I think so. Um, one of my notes says white people like to feel good about yeah. having sympathy for poor people. Mm. Um, and I think that's probably part of it. Like you can do a lot of pearl clutching about like that poor thing. Yes. And how could anyone leave her out there? Mm-hmm. Um, but Delia Owens, like, one of the things that uh, sort of upset, one of the many things that upset me about this is that she like, the author functionally lets all the characters off the hook who are complicit in Kaya being abandoned out there. And it's like, well, they all just think of the people who live in the swamp as, you know, not really human and that there's no like social contract Mm. um, that applies to those people. So it's like a a little bit indicated that of course this is a despicable thing to do, but it's mostly just like, well, these are how people are back then. Yeah. Um, Or these are how these small town people would be in this place. Um, Man, I just, I don't know. It's, this was a tough hang for me. (laughs) Well, even the, even her family, which, you know, she's to say that she's left on her own in the marsh at eight, and somehow you, the book doesn't want you to blame anyone. Her family is a is a is a hard thing to accomplish mm-hmm. because the mother has been physically abused and basically she's out of her mind. She goes to New Orleans. She's traumatized. She can't function. She writes one letter that gets burned by her father, saying she wants her kids back, and that's it. And the book kind of wants to let her off the hook because Kyra lets her off the hook eventually. Her dad was a is a war vet who got injured and he's an alcoholic. I, the book doesn't feels like it's, we don't want to judge him either. We yeah. don't want to judge Jody, her brother who leaves and then goes to just two tours in Vietnam. The other siblings we never hear about. Like it, it is weird that like she's out there by herself and no one is to blame somehow. Is yeah, strange. it's like no one's angry no. about her situation, and not even her, including yeah. her, right? And that just did not i didn't buy it you know like i you totally understand from literally the first page why a person would feel compelled to leave that house and get away um but why it doesn't occur to anyone to take the six-year-old with them and i I guess the book says that they just didn't they're all in survival mode too i mean that's what kind of the book is supposed to let us believe that they're in self-preservation mode because the dad is so bad they have to get away and yet once they're all gone he's pretty much fine to Kyra (laughs) like he's sort of absent and we don't see that again which is also weird like I'm not sure maybe there's something about that that she's inspired by nature and that this is an environmental problem like there's no one thing it's all of these things together that's put in this situation which Mm -hmm. feels 
overdetermined to me, but but I will say that the net effect is you're rooting hard for Kyra for something good yeah. to happen to her. And the parts that I like the best happen in the first half of the book where it's her just trying to figure out how to, you know, get gas, how to dig up muscles mm-hmm. to sell to Jumpin', which is not at all a problematic character at all, which we probably <laughs> won't talk about. And there's kind of a little house on the marsh vibe of like, oh, mm. this is interesting. How would you, how would an eight-year-old or 10-year-old, if were it possible, sort of make a life for and take care of herself on the marsh and you're learning about the, the, the land and this particular place and its political history? And there's like a 50-page stretch there where I have to say like, oh, this is kind of interesting. We already have the frame with the murder, which I was like, oh, I don't want to, there's this murder and I kind of felt like I knew where it was going and it turns out it mm-hmm. was. Um, but I think that that amount of, there's a character, she's sympathetic, she's a young girl, a young white girl in trauma is like our totem for we should care about this person. We talked that's about this true. before. Yeah. Um, so that's not a surprise. And then there's a love story with Tate. You know, the, the, the age difference is, I'm not sure what to do with that because he is attracted to her, but then he does say this is wrong. We should also say that Kyra, even though she's lived by herself in the swamp for 10 years, is an absolute smoke show, apparently. Like, she's just <laughs> completely like a siren, beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. But has no idea. Right. And, has no yeah. idea. And her teeth are certainly not messed up. And she's certainly and she's, not yeah. screwed. I mean, she's, she certainly doesn't have yeah, scurvy you know, from just eating grits for six months of the year and all that right. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like how she manages to stay alive and also be a smoke show is the real mystery (laughs) of this book. Um, One of our coworkers, Jess, um, referred to this like treatment of Kaya throughout the book as Manic Pixie Swamp Girl Mm. um, in her own Goodreads review. And I think that's pretty true. Like this is an uh, unbelievable and unrealistic arc for a character for a variety of reasons, Um, but especially the reasons that the men in the story find to be attracted to her Mm -hmm. and then to justify the ways that they treat her. Um, It's, it's, yeah, there's, there's some stuff going on there. And then like to not to spoil the ending, but like actually to spoil the ending um, that it turns out that Kaya was the one who killed Chase, who is the man who tried to rape her. Like, there's a nice, like, I guess, potentially a nice, like, revenge yeah. thriller kind of satisfaction mm-hmm. to that, that, like, you've rooted for her. You get to be upset that she's been treated this way. Um, you're a good person who would not ever allow this to happen to a young girl. And, like, good for you, honey. You got your revenge. Right. Well, and that's the other thing I was going to say. It's several genres wrapped into one. There's a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a survival story and there's a romance and they all for their genres resolve themselves in the way that the genre themselves would expect. Like right. this is a capital R yeah. romance, I think, right? Yeah. There's a happily ever after. There's a whodunit. Wait, you find wait, out who did right? it. They do live. Huh? I don't think it is a capital R romance because a capital R romance, you have to know it's going to be a happy ever after at the big, at the outset. Right. Isn't that part of the deal? It's not only a happy ever after. Oh, you have to, yes. And I don't think. I don't think we know that. I didn't know that. We for don't sure. know that from the beginning. Okay. That's true. So, but you do get the happily. But you ever get a, after you do eventually. get a happily ever after. You get the person perpetrating the central crime of the story mm-hmm. gets justice, and it's given to him by the person he perpetrated against, and Kyra gets away with it. 
Yeah, you do kind of get like all the classic story archetypes together. You get like man versus man, man versus nature and mm-hmm. man versus <laughs> self or a woman versus all of right, those things right. in in this case. Um, and there is a lot of nature writing. Like I, in my like, okay, but why do people love this book? I went way down the Goodreads mm-hmm. reviews rabbit hole and the nature writing comes up a lot. There are these like rhapsodic descriptions in the book um, about the landscape in which Kaya lives and the people who love the book. That's one of the things yeah. that they seem to to yeah. love about it is the nature writing. Um, I don't know. I disagreed like as a person who reads a lot of nature writing. Um, mm. It didn't I don't know. It did not ring my bells. It, it felt to me a little like the author wanting to show all of the things that she knows about nature and plants and the wildlife of a swamp in the same way. Like my note says the characters in this book talk about nature the way a Dan Brown character talks about mm. art history. Um, and it, fe- it just felt like kind of a fact research dump of like, here's what I know about these here's things. What, here's about the research. Herons mating rituals. But it's, okay. But sure. it's like, yeah, it's like a little, it's bloodless. Yeah. Like there's not any real joy behind it mm. um in my reading of it at least it it just did not quite work for me and it's I, it, to me i i felt that was manipulative like we're supposed to feel so bad for kaya because her situation is legitimately awful but there's this like kind of two part like but at least she lives in yeah this but really isn't she lucky place? that because of her system circumstances right. she has to live in this magnificent right. beautiful she, place. She, right she lives in this beautiful place and also like well at least if she has to have an awful life it's kind of softened by getting to live in this beautiful place yeah, but she's and digging like, muscles at four o'clock in the morning every i mean right. it is a disaster like it's she's terrible. not right she's not like communing with the forest and singing kumbaya mm-hmm. and like worshiping gaia like this is not her relationship with nature her relationship with nature is very utilitarian, which is what it has to be when you're struggling to survive. Like when you can't feed yourself because you're a seven-year-old whose parents abandoned you, you're not like sitting around with time on your hands to appreciate the wonders of the natural world or to give away your leftover food to freaking seagulls. Or um, become an expert in the seashells of the eastern seaboard and mushrooms and seabirds and publish three books and also become a published poet secretly. Um, <laughs> tough. tough. Right, yeah. Tough. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know. There's a. It's hard to say... Like, either you believe it or you don't. I think ones and fives star reviews on Goodreads are like an interesting way of framing how to think about it. Because I think you're right. The people who like the mm-hmm. book, people who love the book, let's put that's a five. They they love Kyra. They are invested in her story. They like the nature writing. They were pulled along by the romance. And I think they found the crime, murder stuff um, satisfying. Compelling. You get all that together. And apparently that's enough for it to be a giant book. The people who were less impressed like us, I think don't believe the characterization weren't impressed by the nature writing and we're kind of paint by numbers about the murder stuff. I think mm-hmm. that's a, is that a fair characterization of yeah. our kind of sense and the one stars and two stars kind of reviews? Yeah, I think so. Um, so there, but okay. So let's do this. So if you're going to do book club or if you had done book club, like what is there to talk, like what's interesting to talk about here? is maybe even more fun for us than did we like it. Because mm, ultimately, that's mm-hmm. just our review, recommendation, personal opinion. But what's here that would be interesting to talk about is pretty good. But let's do that. Before we do that, let's do our, our last sponsor. 
Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Okay. So what what's interesting here? I mean, because sometimes plot-heavy books, which this one really is, frankly are yeah. not that interesting to talk about because what are you going to talk about? Like this happened, like Dan Brown books, for example, which we love. Um, and maybe, you know, it's a moment to say like, just because some things are unbelievable doesn't mean we have to like it or not like it. It depends on right. what your suspension of disbelief is about. That might be interesting too. Here, I think one thing that Owens in some of the um, interviews she's given is interested in is sort of patterns writ large in nature patterns in history patterns in personal family systems and then she doesn't really say this but the book seems to be about breaking those patterns too um so she kind of you know like her mother's abused her father there's like this pattern of abuse and violence against people in her family from a from a variety of sources mm-hmm. that kyra frankly we're, sp- we're led to believe breaks out of by killing her abuser. Like, there's no other way to put that, yeah. right? Is that a continuation of the pattern or a breaking of the pattern? I think is a fascinating kind of a question, actually, um, mm-hmm. from my point yeah, of view. Yeah, like, does Kaya eventually go to lots and lots of therapy? Is... Yeah, like, is is what she did justified? Um, is kind of a simple question, but also could lead you to some more interesting places. I mean, the the legal penalty we all agree on for attempted rape is not the death penalty, but the book gives us some clues that maybe in this situation, because the law is not on her side, you can't prove this types of thing. She's worried about the next time Chase came after, maybe he was going to kill her. In a larger sense, was this the only kind of option for her to protect herself? I don't want to answer that for you, but I think it would be an interesting question for a book club setting to talk about. 
And I think that can also lead to some discussion about sort of the larger societal or like systemic things that I think Delia Owens is trying to get at here about like that functionally it's hard enough for women to report attempted rape, mm-hmm. period. But if you've been known as the swamp girl and also you're this like siren of the swamp and there are all these rumors about like who your lovers are and that you're just like a wild cat in the sack. Um, It would be even harder. Like, of course she doesn't think that someone is going to believe her Mm -hmm. in a, he said, she said situation that comes down to like a showdown between her and the former high school football captain in 1969. Um, I mean, remember that too. Right? right? Yeah. Yeah. In 1969 in the South, like you can, Uh, You can have some discussions about these societal Mm -hmm. structures that would have that allow the men in the book to behave the way that they do. Um, And the the other members of society, it's not just men in the book who are crappy to her. It's kind of everybody. Um, Delia Owens in this blog post on Hello Sunshine says that she wanted to write a story of what happens to an isolated an isolated young woman who's been deprived of a pride. She learned about loyalty from herring gulls and about dishonesty from fireflies who changed the pattern of their flickering lights to get what they want. The nearby villagers who lived in a strong troop discriminated against her simply because she was different and alone, just as wild creatures do. And she's trying to explore like, why even though we know that humans should behave better than animals do we don't always succeed in doing that and like what's at the raw center of human nature but if that's really what this story is about then like this is a very skeptical reading of the raw center of human nature because no one really in this book has an altruistic encounter or relationship with Kaya except for Jumpin and his wife who are also the only black characters that we get on the page and there's a real touch to me there was a real touch of like the magical mm-hmm. negro archetype happening with them which maybe we should say another minute i mean it's not a classic magical negro situation where they're you know sometimes actually magic right like the a classic right, one right. like in the green it's mile not vance, right it's not yeah. bagger vance where they actually are magical but if they are different and marked as different because they care about Kyra. And I think that would be something interesting for a book club discussion too. It's like, why mm-hmm. was Jumpin' and Mabel, um, were they, were the ones that reached out? They were, they're black people working the docks in North Carolina in 1968. They've got needs in their own community. I can only imagine at this particular right. moment. And yet they go out of their way to provide her clothes, to sort of basically fake that they want the smoked fish that, that that she provides and says there's some mm-hmm. family in town that wants them and we're going to give you all these clothes. They throw her a lifeline and the book is not prepared to deal with the racial aspect at all. Um, no. It's not commented upon other than they're, that they're black and that the community that is nominally discriminating against Kara, though I have some questions about what is it actually discrimination that we see? She's just a loner girl that besides Chase assaulting, I don't know. Anyway, that's a different... And like, I was frankly really surprised that Jumpin didn't show up as a suspect for Chase's murder because everybody in town knows that he has such a strong relationship with Kaya and he would have maybe known about something that went on between them that like, if it's true that they had this conflicted Mm -hmm. romantic relationship and that Chase hurt her, who would be out to take revenge on Chase? Maybe it's Jumpin. Yeah, I I think probably the racism of the community doesn't even see Jumpin as factoring in this this psychodrama that the town is imagining playing out. But I think it would be interesting to think about like 
Owens didn't have to make those characters black. They could have been white characters or black characters could have figured differently. Like this is one of those situations where the, the book and the author don't seem to be grappling with the race issues. So you get to, you, you can, the subtext is easily to, is easier to describe. Is it a human? Does it put the black people outside of the normal societal rules? Mm -hmm. Does it ask them to do things that are unreasonable? Does it, I, I think that's conversation could be For very sure. interesting too. The gender stuff here, I'm not sure what to make about gender here, except that there's the, you know, the, the, always, the always already of being subject to the male gaze, of course, is part of it. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, I'm not sure where to go with gender in this book. Not because it's not there, but just I'm a little bit confused about what the book is trying to do. Yeah, I'm confused by it too. I do think there's some discussion fodder there in that like, the lessons that the characters get on the page about de gender, like explicit lessons come from Kaya somehow managing to remember things that her mom told her about how important it is to have a group of women friends. Yes. When she's six, um, like, that's something she picked right. up. Yeah. yeah. That she remembers this and seems to like remember it verbatim. And then Tate, who is our like so-called good guy, has these conversations with his dad who talks to him about, um, I'm paraphrasing, but how like a real man is one who feels his feelings and treats people with respect. And like, I'm sure that there were dads giving mm -hmm. their kids that talk in 1969, but it feels very much like a 2019 expectation of masculinity getting ported back mm. to those characters. And so some talk about like, what are the lessons, like, what are the beliefs that these characters would have had about gender? Where would they have come from? Um, how do we read this story through a 2019 lens? Or like, if the story were set in 2019, how would it, how would that work? I think is an interesting question too. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the physical location is maybe for me, the most interesting thing about it. I didn't know and I don't, I mean, North Carolina is a big state. I don't know where on the seaboard is, is further north or further south. It feels further south. Like if you had taken away the actual state names, I'm thinking Florida in my head was where I'm going with this, mm. but it's, I'm guessing Southern North Carolina, but this marsh and the swamp going back to, you know, hundreds of years, a liminal space, which is sort of basically barely deeded. At one point, Kyra has to go to the courthouse to figure out whether or not she even, her family even owns the land she aren't, she's on. Turns out it was, but there's some history too about, you know, this is a place where, you know, escaped basically soldiers ran away to convicts, people that didn't have anywhere else to go. Almost kind of like the dump of society is the marsh. And if you don't have another place to go, you can go to the marsh and it has its own rules. It has its own maps um, that, that exist in the minds of the people and the fauna and flora that live there. And it is of the country, but is not of the country. And I think that was maybe the most interesting part to me of the whole book is like, it really is liminal. It's not ocean. It's not land. Mm -hmm. It's not extra legal. It's not legal. It's not yeah. of the human world, but it also is of the human world. It's of history, but also outside of history. I think maybe that does a lot of heavy lifting for kind of a suspension of disbelief for the whole mm -hmm. book because the marsh itself is exists outside of the rules that were associated with like the world as we know it. Yeah. And that I think the landscape and the characters all contain contradiction. And we're told that from the very beginning mm -hmm. that this land is both hard and also lush and beautiful. The people are outlaws and outsiders, but 
not necessarily because of choices that they have made. Some of them just end up there by the product of circumstances. It's like sort of a hard scrabble existence and the outsiderness of the people who live in the swamp did feel believable to me um, and that they would be treated in the way that they were treated. Like the, the childhood dynamics of like kids taunting her and calling her swamp girl, like that felt totally believable. Um, And that she, that Owens does establish like right up front, like that this isn't intended to be straightforward. Like this is a beautiful place to be. It's also a really difficult place to be. Um, These characters do awful things, but they've also suffered awful things. And I just felt like, like, there's a lot to talk about there, but she lets them all off the hook a little bit too easily. Well, we get all this talk about people who live in the marshes and swamps, like they're a different breed and they're this. But Kyra's the only, the, the Clark family's the only swamp marsh family we meet. There's no other, Chase doesn't live there, Tate doesn't live there, Jumpin' and Mabel don't live there. We're told there's all these people that live in the swamp, and yet we don't encounter any other ones of them for, I guess, right. plot reasons, because if we did we might hold them responsible for some sort of community feeling. Then then we would say, well, mm-hmm. if you, at least you're going to take care of your own, right? Like, is there some sort of fellow feeling here? But they have to be sort of extinct or outside the margins of the story. Otherwise, she isn't isolated. Like, mm-hmm. even, t- I mean, Tate, I think the book clearly wants us to root for Tate, even though he, you know, does her wrong, as as the saying goes. But we're we're <laughs> supposed to forgive him for reasons. The book tells us explicitly that, we should forgive him, I think. Yeah. But there's something too. There's there's a thing, there's a power dynamic with Tate that is exacerbated and caricatured almost in Chase that almost makes us forget that it exists with Tate as well. It's like, mm-hmm. she's alone. She doesn't know anybody. She has nothing. And he, she's available to him in a power way that I think doesn't, if you think about it too much, can't be fair it can't be reasonable to Kyra of course she's gonna like him she's the only person right. that's decent to her within even the same like decades of age bracket right. like is that really a choice is it really a, a, like, a, is it do we consider I think that's the book club question I'm circling around like do, yeah. is her affection for Tate I don't valid is the wrong word is it more than oh my god somebody else cares anything at all about me who's mm-hmm. even close to my romantic ballpark and i'm just not sure what to do with that yeah i think that's a great question and i think you're right that the chase stuff comes on really strong in that like she is if you're a, if you're a guy who's looking for a victim kaya is a good mark yes. or is a kind of an obvious mark and owens hangs a lantern on all of those reasons that chase mm-hmm. sort of it that Chase pursues her and then in the ways that he is awful to her. Um, I had so many moments reading this of like, this child has never seen a functional relationship of any kind, like not a functional friendship, not a functional romantic relationship between two people, not just a functional relationship between two humans who have to interact with each other. Like there's, there's no model and she would just on a human level have to be yearning for a sense of belonging and being seen and being cared for and that has to be such a relief and we do get that when 
Chase or when sorry when Tate shows up we get like sort of this sense of relief and excitement um an anticipation to see him and to spend time together because of course that feels good but like what is really the core of that relationship and would it actually carry two people through mm-hmm. 40 years together as it ultimately does I think is a, that's a great book club discussion Well and there is the the initial sort of I mean it's it's there is a nice moment where the Tate and um, Kyra's, I guess, courtship begins when she's pretty young, but it's we don't know it's a courtship at the time, and they're using feathers to communicate, right? Yeah. They leave them on the mm-hmm. stump for each other, and the feathers themselves are used in courtship of birds, so it's like a nice allegory kind of, and Owens doesn't hit us with a hammer on it like she does in some other mm-hmm. places, like this is a metaphor, these mating rituals of birds are a metaphor for human mating, like, <laughs> we don't do that, which is, I think, great, but I found myself wondering especially with all the talk of, about how her mom says, you know, women's friendship is like, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. That the Tate character, forget about the romance stuff for a minute. Maybe it could be, still be a part of it, but it doesn't necessarily, wouldn't have been more interesting if that person who throws her a, rather than an olive branch, a dove feather, was a, another girl, another young girl, you know, reaching out to this person mm-hmm. she sees being as afflicted, sees being as alone, rather than as Marshall hot, I'm going to set some feathers out for her and let's see where this goes, which is the plain text reading of what Tate is doing there. Yeah. Yeah. There's some real like damsel in distress yeah. stuff going on here. And maybe there's some like wish fulfillment on the, on readers parts oh. in that relationship too of, um, or some desire to believe that, like, of course, the thing that a young girl, and I think she, yeah, she's like 14 when Tate comes back into her life. Of course, the thing that a teenage girl would desire more than anything else is for a boy to be nice to her and pay attention to her. Um, and maybe that's true in its own way. I mean, it doesn't have to be yeah, untrue, but I don't know. Right. And then, I mean, we also have to talk about the end, which I think. Yeah. So the 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 legal ending where it's basically Detective Eric, who... um Kyra's Lord sort of plays like a fiddle and, you know, disproves that they have enough to convict her. Turns out to be right, by the way. He had this mm-hmm. story exactly right. Um, but and maybe, I don't know, but enough about the law. Like, is it a surprise that she's not convicted? There's very little evidence except it's circumstantial and so on and so forth. And then the end of the book is fast forwarding decades into the future, right? Yeah. And the end of Kyra's story is a little bit different than a, than a normal happily ever after, I think, or even a normal romance, frankly, where we follow her to the end of her life. And one day when she's 64, she's out on a boat. She and Tate have long been married, living out on the march. She's a scientist. She's writing books and I guess still submitting poetry to the local paper as Alexandra Hamilton. And it's very Amanda, Amanda Hamilton. Yeah. And it's not great poetry, but that's a, who cares? Um, and she just dies, you know, she dies on the Mars, sort of like at one with the universe, like Yoda sort of melting into the, <laughs> the ether and they don't have any kids and they've lived by themselves with virtually no other human contact for, for decades. And I was like, Jesus, that is a rough, that, that's not, mm-hmm. if I'm imagining what Kyra's happy ending is at the beginning at six, it's not, she's going to live with one dude forever yeah, like, at the end of the marsh. Like, that's just not what I was this imagining. Is, this is also not a healthy relationship no, no. that people are supposed it's to be codependent, dreaming right? about. This is co- this is oh, codependent, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. AF. This is codependent mm-hmm. AF. And 
it's also not what happens in nature. Mm-hmm. Like if if that's what Delia Owens is trying to do, like animals that need to live communally, need to live communally or need to live in packs and don't survive to healthy ends yeah. if they go off by themselves or just in one like in one other pair. Um and I think we know about humans that like just two humans living off somewhere in a house alone together without much interaction with society. It's not going to go super well. Mm. Um, We have to talk about these Amanda Hamilton poems. What what is there to say, Rebecca? There's so many. (laughs) There's so many. And I skipped all of them. I read like two. I'm like, oh, great. Another. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I started skipping them, too. And she like memorizes them and quotes them out loud. Well, the book book. lies to us. The book lies to us. It does. Because the book lies to us because Kaya is Amanda Hamilton. We find Tate finds out like going through her stuff. Um, And. Like Kaya's internal life mm. was like, I think this is a good book club discussion is like, what do you believe or not believe about Kaya's internal life her, like her inner life, her internal monologue mm. um, through the story? Because we get a lot of moments of her like talking out loud to herself, declaring yes, what she thinks right, right. or declaring what she's going to do. Um, and and actually, we don't spend a lot of time in her head. It's like when she thinks something, we know it because she says it out loud. Yeah, that are, I think maybe the the literary critic question, or the the um, if you were doing this in class, is the, about point of view. Like, where is the point mm. of view? How does it move around? Mm-hmm. Like, clearly in the in the legal thriller sections, that's it's more of a third person. There's the cops. The detectives are doing this, and they're saying this to each other, and blah blah blah. With the Kyra, the Kyra sections, we do move between Tate a little bit. Um, we move into, we get things that Kyra can't know about Jumpin' and Mabel talking to each other, but then we also get her internal thoughts sometimes, but not always. I think crucially in the place, in the time when she's on trial, she knows she's guilty, but she doesn't think about her guilt at all because if she did, we would know. So the point of view is very right. strange there. I don't know. It, I'd have to go back and look at it again with a pen to sort of say, here's where, here's where the, here's where the camera is at different times, Yeah, but it becomes confusing. It becomes very enmeshed and it moves around. Yeah. We're going to get to know where the camera is eventually because Reese Witherspoon is producing a film of this. And I think how it plays out and like, is there narration or not? will be interesting to see how are they going to handle the timeline stuff? Like, I did enjoy some of the later pieces of the police procedural parts, like watching the cops puzzle through trying to figure this out, watching the one cop like sort of want to write an easy narrative about it and watching the other one be like, no, let's look for evidence and what might there be and how could this have worked this way? Like that was that it was interesting and it was page turnery there. Um, The biggest question I have about the whole thing, perhaps Mm. one of the biggest questions is what is up with that cat in the courtroom at the <laughs> Sunday end. Sunday Justice, the cat? Yeah, the cat. Okay, first of all, Sunday Justice, excellent Such cat a good name. name for a courthouse cat. That might be the best part of the book, <laughs> is that the cat is named Sunday Justice. So good. I, fe- like, I feel like maybe Delia Owens meant that earnestly, but I took it ironically, and it was appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the 
uh, what like the I just don't understand the point of having that cat involved in the story especially because the cat seems to like stand in symbolically to indicate Kaya's like innocence or that the cat doesn't have a preference for anybody but wants to sit on Kaya's lap and then we find out that Kaya is guilty is the cat actually a red herring like well and the I, bailiff lets the cat in like the bailiff is very sympathetic <laughs> to her and it's just very, it's very, I mean, it's, it's something of, it has, I think it has something to do with her need for connection, desire for connection, but for whatever reasons, both internally, externally, she doesn't have the ability to connect with other humans. So the cat is the thing she turns, she doesn't, Tate's not, or he won't, she won't let Tate visit her or jump in or anyone or whatever. So she's very yeah. like closed off and yet she's needing connection. Like, I think there's a version of this book I'd respond to better if that desire but standoffishness mm-hmm. for connection was more central to the story. That that conflict of being, I really need human connection, but I'm both scared and I don't have the social, t- social emotional tools to even know how to connect to other people. Yeah, um, I, spent, have been, I, I think I would have responded to that in a more human way than I'm reading. I spent a, a lot of time, yeah, thinking about like if this happened in real life how would the story get told and who would tell it and what would they say? Like if Barbara Walters interviewed grown up Kaya Mm -hmm. about this whole thing, what does Kaya talk about? And then like, what does Kaya write in her memoir that she definitely gets? Because when you have survived being the swamp girl, you are for sure getting a book deal. And I came to that kind of same thing that I would want her to, like we get the impression we're basically told that she's very smart. She's self like she becomes self-educated once she learns to read. She like is very interested in very complex things about biology and nature. And then ultimately about human nature, like the memoir there would, could be about surviving this. Well, it's educated, abusive. right? It's Tara Westover's. I mean, it just in a different kind setting, of is. right? Like, it's, it's very similar in some ways. Right. Like that she comes out of that and, and then, like, from the vantage of adulthood, presumably after decades of therapy, um, can explore, like, that desire mm. for connection and why it was thwarted. And if she's able to connect with Tate, how? And all of, sort of, all of those things. I think maybe having the ch- the character be a child for so long in the book is a disservice to the story. And the way that mm. this would go, I think, in actuality, like, Kaya dies probably pretty quickly if she's trying to survive in the swamp in real life. And if she doesn't, the trajectory is probably more likely to be, like, a Nell kind of character. Yeah, we have cultural, like, alternate paths for how this goes, right? Like, Raised by Wolves, yeah. Nell sort of story mm-hmm. is very much out there, too. And we get this weird moment, too, where... The book almost acknowledges that she wouldn't survive when she gets that nail in her foot. And she's like, I'm going to get right. tetanus. And then she doesn't. And I almost feel like that the book's telling us that maybe suspend your disbelief about the, like, the reality of her survival. Mm. Like, okay, mm-hmm. she's going to get a nail. She probably gets a horrible, if not lockjaw, she's going to get an infection. Because she's walking around with a freaking hole in her foot in the swamp. And she survives after eight days and everything's fine. And that's kind of like, it's her safety, her physical safety in the swamp is not the story. And the book doesn't want it to be about that. Yeah. And I think that's where Jess's manic pixie swamp girl thing kind of starts to take place. And then it does carry all the way through to the ending where we believe or we're told to believe that the order of events that would have required someone to Mm -hmm. that would have required kaya to like successfully pull off the murder are impossible but 
Kaya was able to do it because she's a magic girl from the swamp. And we, we're never told and how she like, does it, right? That she gets rid of yeah, like, it. I don't get, I don't understand how yeah, she pulls and it it's off. Like, Right, and it's ultimately like her childhood was awful, but hey, at least she developed these abilities to like navigate the swamp so quickly that she could murder the guy who assaulted her. Isn't that kind of nice? Like, Yeah, and th- there's a thing too about, I mean, the book has this message of like, it shouldn't matter where you're from. If you're awesome, you should get rewarded or acknowledged. And the, the figures that allow her to do that weirdly are the publishing industry and newspapers. Because she mm-hmm. submits to them without knowing who she is. She could use a pseudonym. You know, Tate says, like, all your drawings and notes on birds are so fascinating. You should publish these. And they are. Okay, sure. Whatever. <laughs> and she makes a, quite a lot of money from these books. It seems like enough over time. Like, I don't know what, this, what the um, sales rate of our guys to seashells in tourist traps along the eastern seaboard. But <laughs> apparently it's fairly lucrative because she gets plumbing um, because from her royalty check. She earns out plus some, mm-hmm. it would seem. Which maybe is the least <laughs> believable thing in the whole book. <laughs> we could do buy, sell, hold on Kaya's publishing uh, sell, career. <laughs> sell, 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 sell. <laughs> um, but then, but it seems like, again, it's not a, that interesting of a message. Like, just because she's from the swamp doesn't mean she can't do things. I mean, I guess because she's clearly a wonderful poet because she's published in the local paper. Okay. Uh, I'm just not sure that there's anything interesting. Uh, there at all um let's do our favorite i i, I called it billy's pizza idiosyncrasy <laughs> delivery service an homage to one of the great idiosyncrasies of all time in the um especially i think it carry through i think it carried through a little bit in the lager Crans. i read a couple of those mm-hmm. uh but in the um steve larson versions of the the elizabeth salander books a lot of mention of billy's pizza and how much like very specific references to billy's pizza which has became a endearing i think for me idiosyncrasy i'm not sure these are but like there's some idiosyncrasy here. We talked about there's all these poems. The other one is maybe the biggest turnoff for me. And I'm not from the South. I don't live in the South. I don't know. Maybe I'm overly sensitive. But the dialect was a rough go. Am I wrong? What was your sense of the dialect? Oh, right? the dialect is a okay. rough go. Like I read this location as being kind of on the like the sound side of the Outer Banks of North okay. Carolina. I feel like I might have picked that up somewhere and down there you get like what's called a tidewater accent Mm -hmm. this is not the tidewater accent i'm not sure what southern accent this is well i said this is like out of song of the south like that's a word this is a very it felt to me a very caricatured Accent. Yeah, I'm not actually sure that Delia Owens has been to well, I, the South. She, she lives in Idaho. And Does like, she have connection to this place yeah, at all? I, I was wondering I about don't, this. Yeah, I don't know if she's been to the South. Oh, wait. Uh, one of the she, is from, she did go to school at University of Georgia, so she's been around there. Okay. I don't know her. Okay, so my, maybe this is like a deeper South yeah. version of a Southern accent. This is not what people in North Carolina sound like. Um, maybe it was in 1969. Yeah. I, don't I don't know. know. Um, it's also... Like the geography is an idiosyncratic thing here. Um, I think one of the Goodreads reviewers points out like that there are many places closer than Asheville to the coast, um, oh. to anywhere in coastal North Carolina that a person would like go to get a bicycle or go to find a department store. Um, I didn't think about the, that at all. I didn't even get I didn't it. think yeah. about Yeah, I didn't think about it either. But when they pointed that out, I was like, oh, yeah. Like, but Owens is kind of obsessed with sending people to Asheville. Um yeah, the but back to the dialect, like I had a real about it. And I do think uh, like 
especially given that the there seems to be such strong racial segregation mm-hmm. in the story, like the white characters and the black characters would have had different dialects or at least variations. And it seems to me that everybody in this book sounds the same, yeah. no matter right. what. I just... And again, I don't know enough to to judge it from a sort of an absolute objective point of view, like this is reasonable or not. But on the page, just even the the, the shape of the words, because there's different ways to represent dialect, right? And this yeah. one's very heavy on different spellings and, you know, uh, declensions and abbreviations that appear on the page, which if you just wrote the words out, it would be how the character says it, not how it appears on the page. Dialect, though, is always tricky. It's one of those things where it's almost impossible to get right for reasons because if you mm-hmm. don't have the dialect, you wouldn't know how to necessarily pronounce it, even if the spelling is phonetically trying to get it to you. But from step zero, I was like, man, this is a rough dialect. And I don't always notice it uh, in dialect writing. Like, you know, I've read books in the South that tries to represent more of the speech patterns that doesn't felt as distracting. Maybe I was biased against the book for other reasons, and this is mm-hmm. where I'm putting it. But I have to say, I was like, I'm not sure that this is masterwork yeah. in dialect writing. Yeah, I don't think it is. And like... The book barely passes the Bechdel test, you know, like there's Kaya's not interacting with many characters. The only female characters she interacts with are the truant officer who doesn't really talk to her about anything. And Mabel, who talks to her primarily about getting her period. And bras Um, and bras and bras. And Kaya spends her time thinking mostly thinking on the page, like when she's not thinking about her survival, like once she has that taken care of, she spends most of her time thinking about a boy. Mm -hmm. And so like, I guess that's like the psychological Bechdel test is like, does a character talk to herself about something other than men? Um, Well, the female presences are, are um, quietly loud. I mean, and especially because I think you're right Mm -hmm. to pick up on the thing her mother says about like female friendship, like the central, I don't know, violence, the central lack does seem to be uh, women in her life. Like the book seems to explicit about that, which makes her happy ever ending even more surprising, I guess. Like it doesn't follow through on that idea. Um, And it seemed like her mother's central lack was living in the marsh with Pa, where she didn't have a support system, Mm -hmm. namely in the form of other women. Very, very confused about what that is about and what the internal psychological arc or desire from Kyra really was. Right. Like, are there not well-meaning white church ladies in town who would get together and take care of her or one of them would take her Mm -hmm. in and there would be like one girl at school who would be nice to her? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that gets back to the race part. Is like, why is it that the black characters exist to be the source of a social safety net, frankly? Yeah. Um, is that reasonable to ask of black people? Is that, I, what does that say about the white community? I'm just not sure. I, that's why it's more in the book club discussion question. Like, why mm-hmm. why are they placed there? And they're even more on the margins. Like, jumping, sitting in the chair, always available to Cairo, weirdly. Doesn't have family of their own, even though we're told about them. Tyra, Kyra and Tate, interestingly and meaningfully, don't have children, even though they wanted them, they said. Which I thought was an mm-hmm. interesting I'm not sure to do with that either. Like, why that detail? Why end up that way? I'm just that that perpetual isolation. The book won't let her mm-hmm. out of that, even though she seems to want to be out of it. I, that's where the even outside of the other choices, that's the one that ultimately gets me, leaves me scratching my head the most, is that her happiness and her futurity is to be essentially where she was, but with plumbing. 
Right. Yeah. To con- like that she's she continues to be isolated. Yeah. It seems almost cruel. It does. To see, that's, that's exactly right. Her, it almost it seems yeah. almost cruel for the books on the books. part. Yeah. That. that yeah. That she doesn't get to have children and have the family like to finally have this belonging like that. The best thing that she gets, the closest she gets to satisfaction is that there's a man who loves her for decades. But right, that like no other women come into her life, that there are no children, that like this is it is kind of like the bar's real low there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and maybe maybe the book is having a hard time imagining Kyra living in town with like three... Maybe the breaking of the cycle is not to have children. Like she's so screwed up that she wouldn't know. I don't know. At least that's a trying to yeah, thinking but, through a kind of through line. But there's I don't know. not really acknowledgement that she's screwed she, up. She's like not. She you're ma- right. She's not screwed up. She's, she's remarkably like, well is, adjusted the, for someone who's right. Like this is the so. most unbelievable thing about this book is that she turns out she seems to be mostly just fine. Yeah. Like she has a totally functional relationship. She educates herself. She develops this career, you know, selling books and like. Then ultimately successfully kills the guy who victimized her like and she's just fine like that's actually I think that that's kind of instead of and they lived happily ever after like the unwritten Mm. last line of this book is and she was just she was just fine and she was just and that's not terribly satisfying. Well, and it kind of undercuts the idea that she's been mistreated right because if she was so horribly mistreated by the community that she wants to live in the marsh like I mean I wonder if another way of reading the end is she's coping like she is messed up and this is literally all she can do but i don't think that's the text of the story i think that's i think that's me looking to connect dots mm-hmm. cuz i don't think we're yeah, led I to believe so that she's in survival mode and she's so fragile or skittish that the only sort of thing she can do is live with tate out by the marsh by herself because right. her her like, interaction with jumpin and mabel suggest that with some i don't know nurturing investment you know some connection people who care she seems like she would have been able to raise kids fine frankly but yeah, like based she on her should have life. a yeah she should have a lot of ptsd yeah and I, right she i doesn't. mean not everyone <laughs> who has bad things happen to them has ptsd but it, that her story is that all she really needed was the love of a good fella and indoor mm-hmm. plumbing in a three book contract is a strange and difficult yeah. to, to parse kind of a situation. I guess ultimately now, I guess I'm not surprised that people like it. And I'm not trying to, I also don't want this to come across as a word. I'm trying, you can, I'm not what I want to speak for Becca. I'm not interested in judging anyone who really likes this on its own terms. I guess now that I think about it a little more, I like the book both less and I'm less surprised that other people like it. Because there there's parts of it that it's satisfying in its own way. Whether or not mm-hmm. that's satisfying, I think, is earned for myself. I can see how people would read it as being a very satisfying kind of a story. Because the move is, I'm a six-year-old who's helpless, and no one cares about me, too. I've got a fellow who treats me well. I killed my abusers. I've got a three-book contract. I own my own property. And I've kind of created a life for myself that I can control. From being abjectly out of control to being completely in control, I can see that is one reading. My reading of it is just the other one, which is, boy, is she that much better out than when she started at six? I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's an appealing fantasy. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. A fantasy is an interesting way of putting it. 
anything, I, I'm trying to go, why is it so big? The nature writing, the stories. I think it's as simple as we've got three genres here put together. They all end up well. It's easy to read. People seem to like this sort of like, the, the book I was thinking about, not because the plot is similar, but there's this not too distant historical setting like The Help, where it's both mm. out of our time, but it's also not 1741 or something like that. Like it's yeah. recognizably America. The questions it raises are interesting, but since it's out of time, they're not sort of relevant in the same way. Um, Cause it's sort of a me too kind of book story, I guess that you kill your abuser, this person that's not believed and, but it's also not as complicated yeah, as we might have a, a, a modern me too sort of story being. Yeah, it's like me too adjacent, yeah. but it's not, confrontational or woke right. in its me too-ness. And I think the help is an interesting one there because it was also like really widely beloved, probably more plop, more problematic than yeah. the problems in where the crawdads sing. But like a, the, a question that I've been holding is, and that might be a good book club discussion question is like, how is this book going to age? Mm. What are we going to think about it in 10 years? Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Unfortunately, I think we're on the side of the literati with the the opinion on this book. I kind of, I kind of, I kind of fantasize myself as being more of a reading populist. Um, so I don't love coming down on the side of like, well, yeah, everyone's reading it, but geez, but that's that's ultimately where I ended up. I think it's now the thing that's now more interesting to me. The book itself is the phenomenon of the book, even more than going Same. into it. Like, mm-hmm. why do some books become? <laughs> This is the question I ended up thinking the most about. Maybe we can end here. The The idea of a book club book, there's a lot of subse- subtext to that, right? And I think we, most of us know what that subtext is. But when we talk about a, what we talk about when we talk about book club books, <laughs> we're talking about middle-aged white women, right? That's what we're really talking yeah. about. Yes. And we haven't mentioned that at all. And that this is the kind of book a middle-aged white woman especially... Uh, in middle age, not even, an adult white woman would be attracted to is maybe the most difficult question to talk about in any particular way here. Mm-hmm. Um, or like is supposed to be attracted to as determined by marketing. Well, and it worked. Yeah. I mean, this mm-hmm. this is this has now gone beyond the scale of you market it and so some people bought yeah. it, right? So yes. something in, yeah. in the DNA of this book mm-hmm. speaks to a particular demographic that we call the book club. But do we know that? I mean, I guess that's my other question. I mean, Reese Witherspoon's, was it an especially big book club book? Or is that just we assume it was because how else would a book like this become super popular? The Goodreads reviews are full of people being right. like, I read this for my book club. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe it's the kind of book that you can read with your book club. And I don't know. Write to us. If your book club read this and they loved it, what were the, what was the tenor of that discussion? I want to know two questions. Well, I'd love to know more than two questions, but what I'd like to hear feedback from if people are willing to give it, A, have you read Crawdads? Yes or no. Just yes or no is fine if that's all you've got. B, if you have and you did for book club, what was this? Why? What's your theory? Because now you're closer to the experiencing the in the wild phenomenon than Rebecca and I are. Um, in this particular one. I'd love to know um, if you'll snitch on your book club. We won't use your names. <laughs> what, what was the discussion like? Because I'm assuming because more people reading it, the reaction in book clubs must have been good. 
And maybe it's as simple as the five stars. We love Kyra, and the writing was great. The nature stuff was good and had a satisfying ending, and they, she got a happily ever after. Maybe it's as simple as that. Know. Let us know. Okay, well, okay. Did you like reading it and doing this discussion, or would you rather have not done the book at all? I liked it. Okay. I, I liked the experience, or maybe the more honest way to phrase it is I valued the experience. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> it's good to get in there yeah. of like, what is this book that everyone's right. reading about? And I, I always want to earn the right to have an opinion about a thing, sure. which you have to read it to do that. Um, and I think like, it, this is an interesting question to me now that I've read it about what's mm. going on with this book. I hope that I will like our next book club club book, whatever it is better. Like I also do, do really often enjoy popular fiction Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I've enjoyed a lot of books that have ended up as book club selections. So I'm kind of, I'm a little bummed that I didn't like this one um, because I wanted to, like I wanted to enjoy it, but I found it to be a good, uh, it was a good exercise. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I always like talking about, I mean, I like talking about books. This is no surprise, but talking about it in a sophisticated not sophisticated, where I get to feel like I get to dig in and think about larger issues rather than just getting on to the next one. And it has this meta, the warrant for mm-hmm. making this conversation to me interesting is because a billion people have read it. Like that, right. that yeah. sort of legitimizes any kind of thinking you want to do about it is not just sort of like staring at clouds. I think maybe we have it on our docket to do a, is it good section on the Starless Sea when it comes out? I wonder mm. if we could do sort of a, is it good mashed up with a book club club, because I think you're anticipating that book maybe having the chance to be a real book club winner for a variety of reasons that mm-hmm. we don't want to get into until now. Maybe we can do a book club club prognostication. Get ahead of your book club discussions. <laughs> I like yeah. it. Okay. Well, Rebecca, I'll talk to you very soon. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Bye.